Welcome to Bible Center Church, and thank you for joining us for this week's podcast. We pray the Lord speaks to you as you hear His Word today. It is always a delight to join you in worship at Bible Center. Jeannie and I are honored to be here, and I am certainly honored to be asked to bring this concluding message in the Family Bundle series. I've watched all the messages in the series online, and I have just been so impressed with how Pastor Matt and your staff have uh, crafted crafted together very creatively a series that goes far beyond the standard fare of family issues. You know, the responsibilities of husband, wife, parents, children, those things have been covered, but they've also dealt with some very hard issues, very difficult issues that are so relevant and so pertinent and urgent and often puzzling for families. Just an amazing series. I hope you've expressed your gratitude, your encouragement to them for working so hard to help guide you in the Word of God in issues that are so difficult for families today. It is a joy, a joy to be a part of this. And not just the messages of this series, but also the seminars, the workshops, all of the other classes and resources that have been made available to you. What an amazing, amazing series. I'm delighted to be a, a part of this. Well, if you were to go to Egypt you would be able to see there some of the most impressive monuments in the world. The pyramids, the sphinx, various temples and uh, grave sites and all kinds of things that are all monuments to past rulers in Egypt. There is a man in the Bible who might have had one of those monuments erected for him. You're right, you've guessed it, his name is Moses. But if you will look throughout Egypt, you will not find any monuments to Moses there. He was raised in Pharaoh's household. He was, many believe, being groomed to be the next Pharaoh of Egypt. He had all the wealth, the status, the exalted position, but there's no monument for Moses in Egypt. Why is that? Well, Hebrews chapter 11 gives us the answer. And the answer is because of some choices that Moses made, choices that would forfeit any earthly monument for him, but choices which would also assure a lasting monument. Recognition in the eternal word of God, reward in God's eternal heaven, that's a lasting monument, and that's the kind of monument that Moses was concerned about. Now, as you look at Moses' choices, which we're going to look at in Hebrews 11 today, if you look at his choices, his choices were driven by his sense of priorities. We all make decisions and choices based on our priorities. Am I going to turn off the alarm clock, get an extra hour of sleep, or am I going to make sure I get up in time to have some time with God before the busyness of the day kicks in? Am I going to eat that piece of peanut butter pie or that second piece of peanut butter pie, or am I more concerned about the weight loss I've just been able to, to work on? You know, those kinds of choices, we face, we face dozens of them every day. Those choices are driven by our priorities. But there are also choices that are life-changing that have eternal consequences. Those are also driven by our sense of priorities. I want to show you a diagram that really summarizes this entire message. It's this. Your priorities will result in your choices. Your choices that you make in life will result in your rewards 
or the consequences that come to your life. And those rewards will be one of two kinds. They will be either lasting, eternal rewards, or they will be temporary, fleeting rewards. You say, well, I want the lasting kind. How do I get that? Well, you just kind of work your way backwards in this diagram. Lasting rewards come because of right choices. Right choices come because of godly priorities. And that's what Moses illustrates for us. In Hebrews 11, Moses illustrates how godly priorities lead to right choices which result or assure a lasting reward. How does Moses illustrate that for us? Well, the text indicates three ways that Moses indicates that diagram, lives out that diagram for us. The first way is this. Moses illustrates that godly priorities start with wise parents. Something interesting about Hebrews 11 is that each of the people mentioned are mentioned with this statement, by faith, so-and-so did this or responded a certain way, and it's always the person that's being talked about, but you come to verse 23 and you find Moses is next up in the order, but he doesn't start with Moses. He starts with Moses' parents. Notice what he says in verse 23. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Now, if you're familiar with the story from Exodus, you know that a new Pharaoh had arisen in Egypt, was not acquainted with the Hebrews, and actually saw the burgeoning growth of the Hebrew nation as a threat to the national security of Egypt. And so he issued this decree, every baby boy born among the Hebrews is to be killed. Well, Moses' parents take a very bold and daring move in the face of that edict. They hide their son for three months. Now, the Bible tells us in this verse why they hid him. Did you notice that? They hid him because Moses' parents saw he was no ordinary child. That's what the text says. They saw he was no ordinary child. What does that mean? Does that mean they just thought, man, what a beautiful baby? Well, all parents believe that, right? All parents believe their baby is beautiful. The most beautiful baby that's ever been born on planet Earth until their second one comes and their third one comes, and then that's the most beautiful ever born. I think there's something more going on here than just, oh, what a beautiful little boy. In fact, the two words that begin this verse, by faith, indicate, I think, the key to understanding what Moses' parents were thinking. By faith indicates to me that God must have revealed something to them that they responded to in faith. In other words, they trusted what God showed them. They trusted what God told them. Maybe there was something about Moses' appearance that indicated or confirmed that God had a special plan for him, but I believe that God had revealed to them somehow that there was a special plan he had for this baby boy. And so this is no ordinary child. In fact, I think it's quite possible, I can't prove this, wouldn't be willing to die for this, but I think it's quite possible that God may have even revealed to them his strategic role in being the deliverer of the Hebrew nation out of bondage in Egypt. I think that may be the only way to explain something that Stephen indicates back in Acts chapter 7 where he's preaching that great sermon to the Jewish religious leaders. And in Acts chapter 7, verses 23 through 25, he's talking about Moses. 
And this is what he says about Moses. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people. Don't miss that. He knew who his own people were. His own people, the Israelites. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian. So he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Now, catch this next statement. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. Now, where did Moses come up with this idea that God wanted to use him to rescue his own people, the Israelites? He certainly didn't learn it in Pharaoh's household. It must have been as a small child through his parents. Again, if you're familiar with the story in Exodus, you know that through an amazing series of circumstances that only God could have arranged, in his sovereign plan, God allowed Moses to stay with his parents for the first, oh, three or four years of his life before he was whisked away to Pharaoh's court and raised by Pharaoh's daughter. And so in those three or four years that Moses' parents had him, they built into him. They drilled into him. Two things, his identity. He knew he was a Hebrew. He was not an Egyptian. They drilled that into him. They built that into him. Secondly, they built into him a sense of an ultimate priority in life of a commitment to God, the God of the Hebrews, the God of Israel, not the gods of the Egyptians that he would be taught about. And Moses never forgot it. It was so deeply ingrained in his soul that he could never forget his identity as a child of God and his priority commitment to God himself. That had been done by his parents. So that leads me to ask you this question. What do you see in your child or your grandchild? Now, I'm not just talking about, oh, what a beautiful baby or what a smart kid. I'm, I'm saying, what, do, what are your dreams and hopes for them? What do you really want for your children and your grandchildren? Because what you see in your child, what your hopes and dreams are, will determine the resources that you dedicate to them, your time, your energy, and your passion in what you build into them. So what do you see in your child or grandchild? Do you see the next Simone Biles? Do you see the next LeBron James? Do you see the next Misty Copeland? Wonderful ballet dancer with a Metropolitan Opera? Do you see the next Elon Musk? Do you see the next Taylor Swift? Is that what you see? Because if that's all you see, then you will pour all of your energy and focus into that. All your passion will go toward assuring that career for them. Brad Bigney is a pastor in the Cincinnati area. He's written a book entitled Gospel Treason. Subtitle is Betraying the Gospel with Hidden Idols. In that book, he talks about a number of the idols that appeal to us, a number of the things that attract us and kind of uh, blur our commitment to Christ. And one of those that he mentions is sports in America. I want to read what he has to say on page 32 of his book. He says, you see it with families, even Christians, driving their kids all over God's green earth because my child's really good. He's in a special league, which basically means that the family gets to miss church three out of four Sundays so that the kid can kick a ball, jump off a balance beam, or ride a horse. 
And the child, while being carted from one sporting event to the next in a cute little outfit, is thinking, this is what it's all about. This is so important to mom and dad, what our entire home revolves around. I live for this. That's what the child is learning. Bigney goes on to say, I'm not saying you can't be in a league or you can't play ball, but moms and dads don't give in to the same spirit that the rest of our country has towards sports. As Christians, lovers of Jesus Christ, we have a higher calling. It breaks my heart, he says, to see Christians being sucked into the whirlpool like everyone else. I grieve, he says, when I see someone I've missed at church and say, wow, I've missed you guys. And they respond, well, you know, it's such and such a season and the kids are in a special league. And Randy Patton, he writes, director of the National Association of Nuthetic Counselors has a great principle, just add 10. Right now, she's eight years old, but just add 10 years, and then you tell me where that 18-year-old will be on Sunday after you've had her on the soccer field three out of four Sundays her entire life. Do you really believe she'll head back to church thinking how important it is? If so, you're fooling yourself. Now, before you light up Pastor Matt's inbox with, where did you find this guy? What's wrong with you? I want to make clear what I'm saying and what I'm not saying. I'm not saying sports are bad. I love sports. Uh, I love watching sports. At my age, I used to love playing them and love watching them now. I'm not saying that if God gives your child or grandchild a lucrative career that brings them fame and worldwide recognition, that that's wrong. I'm not saying that only pastors and missionaries are in the will of God. And you know, if you, if you do anything else, boy, you have a career, you're settling for something worldly and fleshly. I'm not saying that at all. What I am saying is this, whatever God places in your heart and the heart of your children, are you building into them godly priorities? Are you building into them, first of all, a sense of identity? that they are God's child, that their identity is not found in their career, their identity is not found in the accumulation of possessions or this world's goods. Their identity is found in their relationship with Christ. Are you building that into them? Are you building into them the godly priority, not only of their identity, but of a priority commitment to Christ? That their commitment is not to build their own agenda, build their own kingdom, amass all they can for themselves, but their commitment is to honor Christ with all of their lives. Are you building that into them? You know, Jesus told us there are really only two priorities we should have in life. It really boils down to two. In the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 6, verse 33, Jesus said this. He said, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. There they are. There are the two priorities. Jesus said that. Seek that first. That's your two priorities. And he says, all these things will be given to you as well. In the context of the things he's talking about, all these other things God will take care of, he's talking about uh, food, clothing, housing, you know, the stuff of life, the stuff that we need, yes, the stuff that we want, the stuff that we tend to amass. Um, He's talking about that. God will take care of that, but your priority is to seek first his kingdom, his righteousness, Now, there's a sense in which same two priorities Moses built into, Moses' parents built into him. Your identity is wrapped up in who you belong to. 
your righteousness comes from being in Christ. Like Paul said, I want to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, which comes through the law, but a righteousness which comes down from heaven, given by God as a gift, by faith. And so my friends, seeking God's righteousness means first of all that you understand you are a sinner and you need the righteousness of God given to you by faith in his son Jesus Christ who died for you on the cross. And if you have that passion, that priority, then you will also want everybody else to know about that righteousness that comes only through Christ. Seek first his righteousness and then his kingdom. What are you doing on this earth anyway? Building up your own kingdom? Are you promoting yourself and your career and your future and what you can get and how well you can live? Or are you promoting God's kingdom? Now, God may want you to be the next and may want your child or grandchild to be the next sports superstar or entertainer or CEO of an international conglomeration of businesses. God may want that for your child. But the important thing that you build into them will carry them even in that to help them realize the the most important thing in my life is not my career. It is my position in Christ and having his righteousness. The most important thing in my life is not building my kingdom, but building God's kingdom. And God may use some of you to resource God's kingdom in amazing ways. The key is what you're building into your children. But let me ask you this. Would you show the same support? Would you have the same enthusiasm for your child or grandchild if God should lead them a different direction than those household names? If God should lead them, for instance, to use their career as an educator to teach in a small inner city Christian school in Chicago? Or use their training as an engineer to design and build a radio tower which reaches Muslims in northern Togo? Or God would use them in their medical training as a medical doctor to establish mobile clinics in the rural villages of Ukraine and establish preaching points for missionaries there. Or if God would use their amazing linguistic skills to go to the central highlands of Papua New Guinea and reduce an unwritten language to writing so the Bible could be translated into that language, would you still be just as supportive and encouraging if that were their career choice? as if they were the next superstar or CEO? I have seen so many parents whose children got a passion in their hearts. They believed a leading from God to go into some form of of ministry, and their parents discouraged them, said, no, 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 you'll never be able to make a living that way. You won't be able to stay here. We're close to our family, so we want you to do this. And push them away from what God was doing. And I watched those young people as the light and passion for what God had put in their hearts slowly dimmed. I could have been one of those kids. I remember in uh, high school, I had plans to to go to Virginia Tech and, and go into some form of engineering. And between my junior and senior years of high school, I went to a youth camp, and God spoke to my heart very specifically, very directly. I'd love to tell you the story if I had the chance, but spoke to me very clearly about ministry. And I came home from those two weeks at camp and told my parents, kind of wondering what they would think. And they both wept and said, John, we've been praying these whole two weeks that God would call you into ministry. I'll never forget my senior year. I'll never forget a bunch of us uh, friends standing around talking about 
you know, where we were going to go to college and what careers we were going to pursue and everybody comparing what scholarships they had to what major university. And they looked at me and said, John, where are you going to go to college? And, and I said, kind of sheepishly to my shame, I said, well, I'm, I'm going to Piedmont Bible College in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, and I'm going to prepare for the ministry. There was dead silence. And finally, one of my friends who was graduating first in our class and had a full ride to an Ivy League school looked at me and she said kind of quizzically, John, why don't you just join the Peace Corps for a couple of years, get that out of your system, and then do something with your life. And I thought, boy, it's going to be an interesting year. And it was. I faced a lot of questions, a lot of ridicule for choices that did not make sense to a lot of my friends. The one thing that kept me focused and centered was my parents. With their unflinching support for what I believed and they could see God had done in my heart. Just a few days before I left for Bible college, my dad gave me a Bible. And a big, huge Bible, a New Schofield reference study Bible that had wide margins. You could write all your notes in. He thought while I was at school. And, uh, but the most important thing about that Bible was on one of the blank pages near the front, he wrote a letter to me. And I made a photocopy of that letter. August 17th, 1970, Dear John, words cannot express how proud and happy we are that God has chosen you to preach to others the glorious gospel of the riches of his grace in salvation. Mom and I trust that this Bible will not only be useful at school, but will be your constant daily answer to every need. Use it constantly, remembering that there is no substitute for the Word of God. No textbook, no commentary, no instructor can take its place. God bless you, John, and keep you in every way, Mom and Dad. And then he listed three verses from the pastoral epistles about ministry. When I read that note in the Bible my dad gave me, and I still have it, still have that Bible, it still speaks to my heart just as deeply as it did 51 years ago. I've put in writing for my family to prominently display that Bible at my memorial service, open to that page with that challenge from my dad, visible for everybody to read. You have an amazingly powerful impact on your families, on your children, on your grandchildren. The question is, what are you building into them? So remember, wise parents model and teach godly priorities, who the identity of your child is and what their ultimate commitment should be. That's the responsibility of parents and grandparents. Moses illustrates that, but Moses illustrates not only that godly priorities start with wise parents, he illustrates, secondly, that godly priorities enable us to make the hard choices. You say, what do you mean by hard choices? Well, look at verse 24. I'm talking, first of all, about saying no to what looks good now. Saying no to what looks good now. Verse 24, by faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Notice, this is the no this is Moses saying no to something. He grows up, he refuses to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Now, those who study very carefully the original text 
of verses like this in the Bible have called attention to the fact that in the original Greek text, there is no definite article, the. It's just, he refused to be called son of Pharaoh's daughter. It's a title, like Duke of York or uh, Prince of Wales or something like that. He refused to take the title. He said no to the title, son of Pharaoh's daughter. Why? Because it created an identity for him that he belonged to the to the Egyptians. And he says, no, no, I'm not going to go by that title because I know my identity is with God's people. There are numerous things that pull at all of us to define our identity by what this world system forces at us. So godly priorities will allow you to say, no, no. But it will also allow you to say, yes, to what looks good later. No to what looks good right now, what would benefit me most right now, but also yes to what looks good later. Look at verse 25. Verse 25 says, he chose, this is the positive, yes, he chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Now Moses saw the real issue here. The real issue is what's going to last. What's going to look good later? And by later, I'm not talking about next week. I'm talking about eternity. What's going to look good in eternity? And, and Moses said, you know what? Identifying with the people of God, even though for a while that means mistreatment, ridicule, persecution, that's going to have far more lasting consequences eternally than the treasures of Egypt. Because he says those were fleeting. They just last for a little while. So godly priorities allow you to make the hard choices, saying no to things that look good now so that you can say yes to what looks good later. So with that in mind, I ask you this morning, what generation are you? You say, what? What are you talking about, John? Well, you know, there's a lot of talk about the different generations, um, and it gets very confusing to me. Even sociologists are confused in trying to figure out the generations. I think most are agreed that on the first three generations of the 20th century, the greatest generation, the silent generation, the baby boomer generation, that's my generation, but then it really gets fuzzy. And even when you read, and I read several of these uh, types of lists over the past couple of weeks, and even the sociologists can't agree on what comes next. It's, It's supposed to be Gen X, but some people say, no, 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 that's the baby busters and nobody can agree on the dates for that. And then come the millennials, or wait a second, isn't that Gen Y? And then comes Gen Z, or the iGen, small i, as in iPhone, or centennials, aren't they supposed to be called? And some even say, we've got a new generation coming up in the last 10 years, Gen Alpha. And somewhere in there, you got to fit the Pepsi generation. I don't know where that fits, but You know, all these generations, I can't figure it out. It gets confusing to me. So I've decided really to reduce it all, and I believe this is probably uh, somewhat biblical, to reduce it to two generations. There are only two generations. And no matter what your age, you belong in one of these generations. You fit well into one of these generations. The first is the now generation. The now generation says, I'm going to live for all that I can get right now. 
there's little thought for tomorrow, even less thought for the distant future, and practically no thought for eternity. I'm going to live for all the possessions I can get now, all the recognition I can get now, all the fun as defined by sinful pleasures that I can enjoy now. I'm going to get everything I can get now. That's the now generation. And then secondly, there's the forever generation. And the forever generation says, you know what? Eternal consequences are more important to me than what I can get right now. More important to me than immediate gratification. More important to me than being in the cool crowd. More important to me than keeping up with my neighbors is what God wants for me. Eternal priorities. Friend, you are in one of those two generations, regardless of your age. I've seen some 80-year-olds that are still living in the now generation. I've seen some 15-year-olds that have their hearts deeply rooted in the forever generation and are living for eternity. You're in one of those two generations. Moses illustrates that godly priorities enable us to make the hard choices. But lastly, he also illustrates that godly priorities enable us to clearly see the results of our choices. You say, wow, now that's pretty cool. I'd like that, to be able to see the results. Have you ever said to yourself, man, I sure wish I could have seen where that was going to lead? Now, we may not be able to see the results of all of our choices, but in general terms, and in the big picture, I believe we can determine where our choices will lead us, what their results will be. We can do that like Moses did in verse 26. Look at verse 26 with me. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. Okay? How do you determine where your choices are going to lead, what their results are going to be? There's a key question that you can ask yourself that really is at the root of this verse. The key question is this, how will this decision look in eternity? How will this decision look in eternity? And I mean far more than just, oh, I'm going to live for eternity because that can easily roll off our tongues and we don't mean a word of it. What I'm talking about is is actually imagining when you are trying to make a critical decision, a life-changing, very important decision that you ask yourself, How's this going to play in eternity? And imagine yourself standing before Christ, as I believe the Bible teaches we will at what's called the judgment seat of Christ or judgment day. Imagine yourself standing before Christ and don't forget the choices he made for you. The choice to leave all the glories of eternity to take on a human body so that he might die a humiliating, agonizing death on the cross to pay the penalty for your sin so that you might have eternal life? Think about those choices. And then imagine yourself standing before the one who made those choices for you and giving the rationale for the choice you're about to make. You're going to make the case to Jesus. Here's here's why I'm going to make this choice. Here's my reason. Boy, that'll change what you consider as most important, what you consider as more valuable. And that's why Moses was able to to say, you know, I think disgrace for the sake of Christ is of greater value than treasures of Egypt. In fact, there are a couple of key words that indicate to me that's exactly what Moses was thinking. So the key question is, how does this decision look in eternity? The key words are these. Look at the beginning of verse 26. 
he regarded. It's an interesting word. The word regarded literally means to give careful thought to, to weigh out two options. This was not a quick decision. He weighed what Egypt had to offer, and he weighed what God had to offer. What did Egypt have to offer? Treasures. What did God have to offer? Disgrace. You say, well, that's not much of a choice. That's not, you know, that's a no-brainer. Choose the treasures every time, right? Kind of like being on Price is Right, and you're the last contestant to the final round, and there are two curtains up there. Behind curtain one, choose this, or behind curtain two, choose that. And, and, and wait a second, we'll make it easy for you. We're going to open the curtains before you choose. So behind curtain one is a toaster. Behind curtain two is a brand new car. What are you going to choose? Of course, the car. No idiot. I can, I'll choose the car. Well, it looks like Moses chose the toaster. Disgrace for the sake of Christ, more valuable than the treasures of Egypt? You know why? Because he had asked himself this question. How's this decision look in eternity? And the next key words show me that's exactly what he was thinking. Look at this. The end of the verse. Why did he make this decision? Because he was looking ahead to his reward. Looking ahead. Key words. Those words literally mean to have your eyes fixed on, have your attention focused on something ahead of you. You will not allow yourself to be distracted by the long look, by what you're looking toward, looking toward reward, eternity, looking for what counts in the presence of God. That's what Moses was focused on. And that's the reason he made the choice to suffer disgrace for the sake of Christ. In other words, to choose his lot with the Hebrew people who would be the people God chose to bring the Christ, the Messiah, into the world. He chose to be mistreated with them rather than enjoy all the treasures of Egypt. Why? Because he had his gaze fixed on eternal reward and not what would benefit him most here and now. That's the reason disgrace was of more value than treasures of Egypt because the disgrace with God's people would lead to more eternally beneficial consequences, reward in heaven. And he was fixed on that. He could not be distracted from that. It is opening day of the 1954 baseball season. Not, not really, but let's imagine for a moment. Opening day, 1954, the Cincinnati Reds are hosting the Milwaukee Braves long before Milwaukee Braves relocated to Atlanta. And everybody's talking about the potential for two young players. One of those players playing outfield for the Cincinnati Reds has already played his rookie season in which he hit 20 home runs, drove in 100 runs, an amazing year for a rookie. And everybody is talking about Jim Greengrass as the next baseball superstar. Have you ever heard of him? I had one guy after the first service say, I've heard of him. I've got his baseball card. Wow. I'd never heard of him. Jim Greengrass. And sure enough, he had four doubles on opening day. Everybody's talking about this is the next guy. This is the next superstar. Oh, oh there was a guy also from Milwaukee that uh, played in the outfield. This is his first game. This is his rookie season. He goes 0 for 5. So everybody's thinking, nah, he's going to wash out pretty quick. He's not going to be any good. 
Oh, his name? Henry Aaron. Hank Aaron. If you know anything about baseball, you know the name Hank Aaron. He would play 23 years, 21 of those years as an all-star. He would retire with almost every offensive record in the game, including the record nobody thought could be broken, Babe Ruth's home run record. What about Jim Greengrass? He only had three productive years because of some leg problems washed out of the league in five years. Now, if you had made your decision on the next superstar of baseball based on what you see right now on opening day, you would have made the wrong choice. It's only after you take the long look that you can see what's really most important. My friend, it is only as you take the eternal look. Godly priorities enable us to see the results of our choices. When our eyes are fixed on eternity, that's the only way to know the eternal, lasting results of your choices. It is godly priorities that lead to that. So I ask you this morning, what kind of monument do you want? A temporary monument, recognition, fame, success in this life only? Or do you want a lasting monument, reward in heaven? What kind of recognition, reward do you really want? Temporary or lasting? Remember the diagram. Work from the the right-hand side or to the left-hand side. Work it backwards. Lasting rewards come because of right choices. Right choices always go back to godly priorities. So what are you building into your family? What are you building into your children? What are you modeling in your own life? Godly priorities? Your identity is not in your vocation. It is not in your possessions. It is in your relationship to God through Christ. Your priority commitment is not to build your own kingdom, to amass all you can get in this world. Your priority commitment is to be kingdom-focused, to further the kingdom of Christ. Are you building that into your family? That's the only way to make a lasting, eternal impact. It's the only way for you to have lasting, eternal reward when you stand before God. Are you equipping your family to make the hard choices? No to what just benefits me right now because I want yes for what benefits me in eternity. Are you equipping your family to clearly see the results of their actions, to focus their hearts and minds on eternity? How will this decision look in eternity? Would you pray with me, please? Father, it is so easy to get distracted in this world in which we live by so many things. It is so easy to get distracted by the allurements all around us, even by the affections of our own deceitful, sinful hearts within us. Keep our gaze upon you and upon eternity so that we will build into our families godly priorities that will lead to right choices, that will lead to lasting rewards. We ask for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. 
For more information, visit us at BibleCenterChurch.com or check us out on social media.